Welcome and bienvenue to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Jessie Anchospe, or you might know her as the biochemical deity of a macronutrient composed of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Yes, she is the glucose goddess. Jessie is a French biochemist, best-selling author, and founder of a movement that has helped millions of people improve their health. Her latest book, The Glucose Goddess Method, is a four-week, four-step program with more than 100 recipes and an interactive workbook that you can leverage to get off that blood sugar roller coaster and start feeling your best. Now, did you know that cravings or your inability to resist them doesn't mean that you're weak-willed or suffer from some unfortunate sweet tooth gene? As Jesse reveals in today's conversation, it's probably one of the indications that you're suffering from blood glucose spikes. And it's the subsequent dips that are the cause of your cravings. Nope, not bad genes or a fixation on sweets or salty carbs. Now you might be surprised to hear that other symptoms like brain fog, unsteady energy, and constant hunger are also a result of the glucose roller coaster. The scary fact is about 80% of people are getting these huge spikes from common foods and even chronic stress can cause them. And there is an emerging correlation in the medical science between these glucose spikes and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. Okay, but the good news, les bonnes nouvelles, is that you can regain steady energy and a sharp mind, eschew cravings, and manage your pangs of hunger. And the glucose goddess method will help you do so without deprivation, draconian restriction, or cutting calories. In today's interview, Jessie shares four powerful principles that she developed in her lab to avoid glucose spikes and to help people start feeling better quickly. And you can learn more by signing up for Jesse's new commune course about blood sugar, insulin, and glucose health at onecommune.com slash glucose challenge. Okay, before we dive in, I want to let you know about some of our programs on the commune course platform. Now, if you're interested in courses on functional and integrative medicine, nutrition, gut health, Ayurveda, and hormone balancing, well, you're in luck. You can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses, more than 120 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. It really makes a huge difference. Okay, without further delay, I present to you the deity of dextrose the glucose goddess, Jessie Anchospe. Jessie, welcome to the Commune Podcast. It's a treat to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. I'm super happy to be with you too. Not a sugary treat. Just no, a, a, a savory a treat. <laughs> To be with you. <laughs> That's a good one. I like it. Well, félicitations. Um, Merci. Congratulations on, uh, on your new book, um, The Glucose Goddess Method. 
Um, so I know the gestation period of books, although you seem to have accelerated that gestation period um, preternaturally, but congratulations nonetheless. <laughs> it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been a wonderful, a wonderful project to, to birth. Yes, indeed. You know, there's just in the United States, there's nearly 100 million people that are pre-diabetic and 90% don't know it. Yeah. And I was one of them. How did you find out, Jeff, in the first place? Well, for me, I honestly slapped on a continuous glucose monitor because I didn't have the intuition in my own body at that juncture to isolate or identify, um, you know, areas of dysregulation like brain fog or crashes or chronic fatigue. I wasn't as attuned to my body. Now I don't have to wear it all the time to kind of know like, Ooh, I kind of fell off here a little bit. (laughs) Um, but for me, it was highly instructive, you know, for people that aren't going to wear a continuous glucose monitor or perhaps haven't refined their own intuition on their body, like what the kind of, what's the best testing, um, to, uh, to find out that information. So, you know, I mean, we can, we can go backwards and forwards over the conversation and keep it pretty organic, but is there any kind of testing that you would recommend if people have an inkling that they may be pre-diabetic or running spikes? Yes, I think there's sort of two big buckets to to separate out here. So there's, you know, having type 2 diabetes, having prediabetes, and that will be usually diagnosed by your doctor. And if you're being followed, you know, once a year by a, a practitioner, they should be testing your fasting glucose levels once a year. And mm-hmm. they might then diagnose, you know, you with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. But then, and that's about 1 billion people in the world, Jeff, today who have type 2 or prediabetes. Wow. Yeah. So it's really, really common. Um, And then, so if you have prediabetes or type 2, 100%, I'm going to teach you lots of cool stuff about glucose levels that can help you put it in remission like you did. But then, you know, for the rest of us who don't have a clinically diagnosed prediabetes, Of course, you know, yearly testing is still going to be helpful. You can even test fasting insulin, which is a much better predictor Mm. of uh, how far along the type 2 diabetes road you are or how close you are to developing it. But then, and this I think is a big part of my work, is also teaching people that even if you don't have prediabetes and your glucose levels are um, in the, you know, normal optimal range, you might still be experiencing sort of transient high glucose Mm -hmm. levels, glucose spikes on a daily basis. And so why do these spikes matter? Well, one, because the more spikes you have, the more more you're going to inch towards that prediabetes diagnosis. So you need to manage those to avoid developing it. But second, because science is now showing us that these spikes actually lead to many symptoms that most of us feel on a day-to-day basis, like cravings, brain fog, unsteady energy. Um, Glucose levels are really connected to your hormonal system. So there's Mm -hmm. lots of stuff going on there, which is uh, quite fascinating. And some studies across the world have been showing or estimating that about 80% of people 
who do not have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes are still getting these spikes into very high ranges from pretty common foods. So all this to say, and this is my work, is like we should all care about our glucose levels, either because we have a condition we want to improve or because we want to not get it or because we want to just have endless energy and feel really good. So everybody should care. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously glucose spikes are very associated with the consumption of certain kinds of foods. Yes. And we can talk about that. But, um, but it's also, you can spike glucose levels from chronic stress. Um, I actually started to spike from consistent sauna use. Um, Interesting. Is, is it because it dehydrates you and then yeah. your your blood becomes more concentrated? That's that's, that's exactly it. You yeah. nailed it. I'm not drinking to, enough water, Jeff. <laughs> well, that was the that was the the protocol, which is you know I I would see these huge spikes and I was scratching my head and I was like, what is that? Mm -hmm. And then I I um, I eventually became to isolate it during sauna time. And you're absolutely right. Basically, I was getting dehydrated, so my overall blood volume was decreasing. So the concentration in everything in it was increasing. Um, and I also saw that with exercise. So, you know. Yes. And so these are the cases where the spikes are not actually bad, right? So okay, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah, I was so, going to ask you that. So the spikes, for example, the exercise spike is a really good question because if you're wearing a glucose monitor and you learned, okay, I should avoid the spikes and then you go for a run or something yeah. and you see a big spike, you're like, oh my God, should I stop exercising? Right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, for, we can talk about this after, but wine or alcohol keeps your glucose levels really low. So you're like, okay, I should stop working out and just drink all day and then my glucose levels will be <laughs> steady. God. But no, that's not the case. Uh, and the ex Yeah, I know, right? Um, and so the exercise spike is quite interesting. So why do we sometimes see this spike when we're activating it? activating our muscles very strongly it's simply because your muscles like every other thing in your body they need glucose for energy and they love using glucose for energy and so if you're doing a really hard workout your liver is going to release some glucose into your bloodstream to feed your muscles mm. uh, and you see that also with stress for example so if you're the biggest spike i ever saw was when i did a big presentation in front of loads of people and i saw a huge spike because that was stress and that was my liver releasing glucose into my blood to give me fuel to run away from the you know invisible lion so your body is going to be doing some fun stuff about with your glucose levels but in in the case of exercise even though that spike does have the bad side effects of glucose spikes, namely inflammation and glycation, the overall positive impact of exercise is still very positive because mm -hmm. all of the benefits completely outweigh those issues. So don't worry, exercise even if you see a spike. Great. Okay, that's really helpful because uh, yeah, I didn't really want to suspend my exercise regime. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love tennis too much. So, and that's where I was really seeing it was, you know, after playing tennis and then I'd look at my app and I'd be like, oh my God, Aww. no more tennis. But no, you've, <laughs> you've, uh, you've assuaged my concern there. Um, but we need the glucose, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's tempting to villainize glucose, right? And um, we hear a lot about it in health circles now. But the body needs glucose, right? And, you know, I, I believe there are certain brain cells that can only function or produce energy 
with glucose. And your red blood cells as well. So yes, okay. you know, your, your body loves running on glucose. It's your body's mm -hmm. favorite fuel. Um, and a lot of our body parts can actually turn to using fat for fuel. But if glucose is around, your body will happily use it. And it gives you sort of, um, you know, express energy. It's very explosive, very rapid energy. And as, as humans, the main way that we give this glucose to our body is by eating specific foods, as you mentioned. So starchy foods like bread, rice, potatoes, pasta, and uh, sweet foods. So anything that tastes sweet from an apple to chocolate ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and I like using this image, which is the image of a plant. So if you're taking care of a plant, you know to give the plant some water. But if you give the plant too much water, the plant will drown and die. Well, the human body is kind of similar in the sense that it loves having some glucose to run on. But if you give your body too much glucose too quickly, then your body is not happy and problems start happening. So some glucose is fine, but the problem is most of us are just giving too much to our body. Yeah, I mean, that is the modern way, right? I mean, culture in many ways has hijacked our evolution. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were used to having periods of abundance where we would have more glucose in our blood and then periods of scarcity, um, which would trigger other kinds of pathways. So insulin always has its counterpart, glucagon from the pancreas, for example, and in low glycemic states on the Serengeti, um, that would, as you say, at the, at the end of the book, I found it actually fascinating. You talk about cravings a little bit and you kind of talk, bore into the, the adaptive mechanisms of evolution and say basically hunger uh, stemming from a low glycemic state um, on the Serengeti meant like, okay, you got to go find some food and guess what? The liver can release glycogen now and even make glucose from component parts called gluconeogenesis. Um, so our body is evolved that way so beautifully, but now in 2023, um, that craving isn't really coming from a biological need. It's coming from these crashes, right? And then, of course, then we have that craving and then we go to fulfill that craving. And you have some great tips about how to deal with cravings and not to get ahead of ourselves, but I thought it was really, really interesting. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. And, and the study that really shifted our understanding of cravings was done at Yale. I believe it's a 2018 study. And they put... Um, and bless these researchers. I mean, they come up with mm -hmm. the most incredible experiments. So they placed uh, participants in an fMRI scanner, the mm. big machines that, you know, image your brain. And um, while the participants were in the scanner, uh, scientists showed them on a screen photos of, you know, crave-worthy foods like cookies and burgers and stuff. Mm. And they asked the participants to rate how much they wanted to eat that food, those foods. And at the same time, the participants were hooked up to a machine that was measuring their glucose levels. And the scientists found something amazing. They found that when people's glucose levels were, you know, steady and at a stable, normal range, people didn't really rate those foods very highly. They were not really drawn to eating them. But then when the participants' glucose levels were low, 
all of a sudden they were like 10 out of 10 cookie 10 out of 10 the burger i need it and the scanner revealed that the part of their brain that is responsible for cravings was activating and flashing up like crazy Hmm. and this low glucose state, you know, yes, in the past, we would only get to that point of really low glucose levels because we hadn't eaten in four days. But today, after a big glucose spike, it is very common to experience also this big crash in glucose, which can put you at that low glycemic state, which makes you crave more starches and sugars. And then what do you do? You eat a cookie because you're like, I need sugar right now. And then another big spike happens. And after that huge spike, a huge drop. And bam, you're right back in that cravings place. And that's really the glucose roller coaster that many of us are on. And we don't even know, you know, that this is coming from our glucose levels. We just think, oh, I'm just somebody who has cravings. I'm just somebody who doesn't have enough willpower to resist them. Well, That's the thing, it's like, actually, if you fix the underlying issue, a lot of these things go away. And it's quite a, you know, it's quite a a quick and remarkable transition to go through. You do such a beautiful job communicating in general, but specifically on Instagram. Um, kind of demonstrating what healthy rolling hills of glucose look like versus kind of uh, the spikes of the Alps the or the Andes yeah. or the Rockies. You know, you, you yes. want to avoid the Rockies and the and the Andes when yeah, it comes exactly. to glucose levels. <laughs> but um, you know, one thing that you mentioned uh, in the book around cravings is that you know because of these adaptive mechanisms. Uh, uh, our body has the ability to essentially provide its own glucose to a certain extent. And so if you have a craving, um, and this is not always easy to do, but just wait 20 minutes, right? And your body, your liver will take care of the craving on its own. That's step one. Yeah, it's like when you're having a craving, I, I recommend you set a little timer for 20 minutes and you tell yourself, okay, if in 20 minutes I still crave that food, I'll eat it. But sometimes within those 20 minutes, your liver releases glucose, your glucose levels come back up. So that craving is less activated. But now you already have the thought of the chocolate cake. And so to me, I just find it really tough when I <laughs> when <laughs> I was like, I need that cake to then even if, you know, physiologically I'm not craving it anymore, I just kind of want the taste. So a better solution is to try to avoid those spikes in the first place place you know so that you don't even think about the chocolate cake that's that's how i see it (laughs) fair enough yeah i mean i'm a i'm an intermittent faster and i'm always putting myself through the process of trying to delineate between biological need and psychological desire how do you do it i find it really hard it is really hard i mean you know honestly it's very tied into a meditation practice Mm. where for me anyways, where I can kind of step back and witness phenomena arising Mm -hmm. moment to moment and not just be identified with it or fixated on it or be carried away by it. So, you know, fasting has a lot of biological benefits and this is, this is not an episode on fasting necessarily, but there is also sort of a spiritual component to it, which is, you know, the craving not to crave, which of course is a paradox. Um, mm-hmm. 
And one of the ways at that is trying to cultivate um, that space, as Viktor Frankl says, between stimulus and response, right? Yeah. So if you can cultivate that space and then try to pull apart, you know, what is a need and what is a desire? Mm-hmm. Um, what do I actually really need and what is just pleasure? Um, mm-hmm. It's very hard, but it's, it's, you know, like anything else, we go to the gym, we have all these different regimes to, for hypertrophy and to grow muscle and to grow cardiovascular health. Well, we can apply that same theory to our, our psychological or mental fitness. And, you know, sometimes that helps when we're trying to find that space. It does. But I would also say, you know, when you're getting this biological response because of the glucose roller coaster of being exhausted or having this strong craving because of these spikes and these dips like it's really hard to just find any i find and i used to be on this roller coaster non-stop i found it really hard to find any space to really try mm-hmm. to pause and not give into it because yes our mind is powerful but our body is really powerful too and when it's like a you know, it's a physiological thing going on. It's quite hard to just yeah, witness. Exert, yeah, yeah, exert top-down pressure when exactly. 97% and, of our lives is bottom-up. <laughs> yeah, and I, I hear a lot of stories of people who feel really bad because they feel like they don't have enough willpower or they don't have that sort of mind training that you're talking about. Yeah. And they feel quite um, helpless and hopeless. And in those cases it's much easier to start developing that mental meditation practice if your glucose levels are steady and you're not trying to fight this like monster happening yeah. underneath your skin. So I would say like steady your glucose first and then, you know, become as powerful as you, Jeff, that doing <laughs> this work. But if you're like nonstop eating starches and sugars all day, it's going to be real hard for you to try to just control it um, yeah. without fixing the biological thing. Yeah, absolutely. So for folks that don't have a continuous glucose monitor, which is the overwhelming majority of people, um, what would be some of the primary symptoms of chronic glucose spikes? The primary symptoms are cravings, as we just talked about. So feeling like you want to eat sweet things, mid-morning, mid-afternoon, after dinner, getting these really intense hunger pangs where where anything around you that is food, you might just want to jump on it. You know, a bag of crisps, like you're at the, you see a vending machine, you walk past a bakery and just this, this these urges that control you in terms of wanting to eat carbs. That's a very common symptom of the roller coaster. A second one that is related is just constant hunger. So feeling like you need to eat every couple of hours, that Mm. is a very clear sign that your body is dependent on these glucose spikes to make energy. So you have Mm. breakfast, two hours later you're starving. Then you have lunch and two hours later you're starving and you're just eating all day. And when you steady your glucose levels, you're able much more easily to go for, you know, four, five, six hours without eating, without it feeling like a biological emergency to your body to get some more food. Um, And then I think energy is something that is so interesting to unpack because when you're experiencing glucose spikes, your energy levels go up and down all the time. So you feel fatigued, you feel tired mid-morning you need coffee you're just you just have a hard time you know going through the day going grocery shopping and like it just everything feels really sluggish and what's 
really cool is that the science shows us that what's actually happening every time you have a glucose spike is that the little factories in your cells, your mitochondria, are actually taking a pretty big hit and they become stressed out by this big glucose spike. And instead of being able to transform that glucose into energy, which is their job and their function, that big influx of glucose just makes them, you know, go and strike, <laughs> mm. as the French would do. And, <laughs> and right. though those mitochondria striking, you feel that as this chronic fatigue. So you're still eating the foods that you were told give you energy, mm. like breakfast cereal, orange juice. But on the inside, long term, your body's ability to make energy is being compromised. So that's a really interesting and common symptom of this glucose roller coaster. Mm. Then there are other symptoms that depending on who you are, your body, your medical history, you might see them or not. Brain fog is a big one. So when your neurons experience this glucose roller coaster, you can feel it as brain fog as the information between them gets slowed down. Yeah. You might see fertility problems. So, you know, no ovulating, missed periods, difficult menopause symptoms. You might see balding on the head if you're female, etc. Um, you might also see skin issues like rosacea, psoriasis, eczema, which are all inflammation-based issues. And those glucose spikes increase inflammation drastically. And then long-term, as we mentioned, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, but also, you know, we're starting to understand that a lot of chronic issues get much better when you get your glucose levels down, like heart disease, like Alzheimer's, like cancer. So, you know, in conclusion, if you think you could feel better than you currently do, then that's a good sign to make sure you're steadying your glucose levels. That's, mm -hmm. that's how I see it. Yeah. The moral of the story is don't raise the retirement age on the mitochondria or, or they'll go on strike. <laughs> well, actually, you know, your mitochondria, what's cool about them is that even if they've been damaged by this stress, they can regenerate. So you can yeah. always get all of your capacity back. And so nothing is, nothing is fatal, nothing is forever, and you can retrain them and they come back. Um, so that's good. That is good. Yeah, there's all sorts of proxies around mitobiogenesis and even mitophagy, which is sort of the mitochondrial version of autophagy. It's How do you do the, that? Um, well, fasting is one way. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, you know, David Sinclair, who's the big kind of, a, you know, lifespan guy is all about, you know, some of these polyphenols that trigger their sirtuin pathway that uh you know upregulates um you know repair pathways so autophagy mitophagy mitobiogenesis um, i've also heard and seen some data around deliberate cold therapy mm. um like so ice baths and cold showers that activate brown fat so as a process of um thermoneogenesis essentially the body's innate capability to upregulate its temperature into that goldilocks zone that activates mitochondria in a certain kind of fat it's actually brown because it's so rich in mitochondria um, because really? there's some enzyme that has a lot of iron connected to it um, it's the oh man i'll never remember it's the cco that that enzyme um cytochroma uh, 
I won't get it here, but um, but it has a lot of iron connected to it, and uh, and iron makes it brown. So the prevalence of mitochondria in brown fat makes it literally brown. Oh, fascinating! And, I did not um, know that. And it can actually beige your white visceral fat. Mm. So um, and we can get into adiposity and blood sugar, and uh, um, but uh, but anyway. So I I'm a cold bather. Um, even though I absolutely abhor it, uh, but I will do it in the morning, um, in a low glycemic state, um, often because my body will have no choice at that juncture, mm. but to burn fat. Smart. Um, so, and do you anyways. really hate it or do you just hate the first like 10 seconds? Um, you know, like anything you train yourself to, to sort of placate, um, But yeah, I, I don't tolerate cold super well. Like I'm not one of those people that like would just jump into the cold lake, you know, without a lot of hand wringing <laughs> before. <laughs> Eventually I would do it probably more out of peer pressure than anything else. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, now I've gotten accustomed to it and, but I don't spend more than 60 to 90 seconds at a time under a cold stream of water. I actually oh, really? find it easier. Even in the shower? Yeah, I actually find it easier to cold plunge to completely submerge my body because it's the sort of, um, it's sort of the attack of the, of the shower that feels uh, more onerous than just like steadying my mind mm. and just getting fully in. That's but. so fascinating. For me, it's the total opposite. Like once I'm in a freezing cold shower, I can stay there. I, I start really liking it. Like after 10 seconds, I'm like, <laughs> oh, this feels nice and doesn't even feel cold anymore. But the cold plunge yeah. for me is super hard. But also the cold plunge, I think, is colder because no matter how cold you make a shower, it's never going to be as cold as like an ice bath. True. Um, I mean, Wim Hof came and visited for about three weeks and he was keen to get a... Um, commercial ice delivery every morning so we would no fill way. the plunge and we would you know the temperatures were you know just above freezing essentially oh. like 35 degrees that was really really hard um, but there's plenty of data that shows that you know water that's even in the high 50s can have a, a very health conferring impact and unlike sauna where there's a lot of data around specific temperature ranges, um, deliberate cold therapy seems to be more subjective. It's more about like what you feel is cold. Um, and I think you kind of train yourself up and you know, you'll hit a certain wall and then you're oh, overcome that wall. But, but so you don't like it while it's happening, but then do you feel good afterwards? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love yeah. It. the feeling is so invigorating. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is more invigorating than a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, in some ways, what you're doing um, is triggering your some of your fight or flight sympathetic responses. So, you know, you're getting a big jolt of uh, epinephrine mm -hmm. and it can make you feel super alert. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's actually like, if you're going into like a learning phase or a learning bout where you're trying to sit down and learn how to play piano or, 
you know, write a book or something, you know, there's a lot of people that say, you know, do a cold bath or cold shower before, because that will get you, you know, alert to that, you know, for an ultradian cycle, I think they call it, it's like a 90 minute cycle. Interesting. Okay, I'll have to try that next time. <laughs> yeah, next writing book. A book. <laughs> Although you morning. might need a break. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's interesting because I, I'm always doing all these projects, and while I'm doing that, I love it. And then towards the end, I'm like, "Wow, this is really hard." And then two days later, I'm like, "Okay, so what's next?" I don't. Yeah. I don't get like a hangover of projects. <laughs> um, yeah. No. It, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> that reminds me of of Skyler, my wife. All of our children were born at home and our, our second child, it was a sort of tumultuous affair where the midwife was double booked and, and didn't show up anyways. That's a whole other podcast. But she, the second she said, I don't think I can do this. I was like, oh, it's coming. <laughs> and then yeah. certainly like two minutes later, there our little baby girl was born mm. and Skylar looked up at me you know, kind of batted her eyes and she said, and this is so strange, but she said it, she said, let's have another. (laughs) So I think you're going through the same phenomenon with your book. (laughs) You're like, let's have another. This one's not even out yet. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh, that's so sweet. Anyways. So you talk about, you know, mitochondria being overwhelmed by an inflow of too much glucose. And mm-hmm. then it says stop and cells become essentially insulin resistant. You know, they stop accepting uh, glucose. Or well, those are two qualified. different processes, right? Like, so there, it's not the mitochondria saying stop. The mitochondria can't say shit unfortunately really the mitochondria can release a lot of stress chemicals so the mitochondria will release free radicals and that will then raise inflammation and might lead to oxidative stress in a cell which just means like your cells are really unhappy but then the insulin thing is a parallel process so every time your glucose levels are high like during a glucose spike your body knows that it's not good your body's like okay bad shit's happening the mitochondria are not happy like let's get this glucose down and so what it does is that your pancreas sends out insulin and insulin takes the extra glucose and puts it away in different places so in your liver and your muscles and in your fat cells and you know insulin gets such a bad rep as well but it's like no guys without insulin you die like people who don't have the ability to make insulin they have to inject themselves several times a day because otherwise their body really shuts down so insulin is super helpful in this case and um insulin gets that glucose level down but the problem is over time just like when I was a student and I started drinking one cup of coffee and I was like, wow, this stuff is so cool. And then after a year, I'm like drinking five cups to just wake up. Yeah. I became resistant to coffee and your your cells do the same thing. They become resistant to insulin. That's yeah. the process. Yeah, that's the process. That's really helpful. So these are two parallel processes, essentially over nutrition at the mitochondrial level will create an abundance of free radicals, hydrogen peroxide, hydroxyls, essentially these molecules that have like an extra electron that become super reactive and then they can cause all sorts of havoc and 
um, yeah, they can mutate your DNA. They can right. like, poke holes in your cells. Like it's yeah, it's not great. Right. Well, this is actually you point this out in the book, and I thought this was fascinating um, when you create a more um, like a direct link between blood sugar dysregulation and cancer, for example. Mm. Um, and you know, yeah, I was trying to kind of understand what the mechanism there is, and you know, I can I can trace some of that around, but. I think the point that you made, which I thought was right on, which is that the overproduction of these reactive oxygen species at the mitochondrial level can cause DNA to dysfunction and that's create one of the a, that's one of the possibilities, right? I'm not right. saying it always does, and right. but it definitely can cause some mutations that can kick off, you know, a cancer. But yeah. also, just over time, that huge amount of inflammation in your body that's a big driver of cancer, right? Cancer is an inflammation-based disease. So the more inflammation you have, the more you're going to have your cancer spread. And so it's just important for so many aspects of health to make sure you're not in that state of hyperinsulinemia. It's really, really a huge driver of so many problems. And um, Benjamin Bickman had written this great book, Why We Get Sick, and he talks about... Mm -hmm insulin and how it's such a root cause of so many chronic diseases um, yeah. and even heart disease now we're starting to learn no it's not it's not the eggs guys <laughs> it's the sugar it's the insulin yeah 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 no, for sure i mean you talk about this process of glycation for example mm. so just to set that table again when you have excess glucose in your bloodstream a number of different things can happen. You already mentioned, well, it can get stored as glycogen for a rainy day, kind of stockpiled in the liver. Okay, great. It can get stored as triglycerides in fat cells, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing because we need stored energy. But mm -hmm. if that is too prevalent, you don't want too much visceral stored fat, basically, or stored energy there. But then another option it seems like for excess blood sugar is glycation. So can you explain that process? What is glycation and why is it yeah, so of course. dangerous? And I will also add one thing. So you can also store um, excess glucose as glycogen in your muscles as well. Uh, and those are a right. huge store of, right. of uh, glucose. Yeah, so they're like the most amazing. Uh, muscles are amazing at soaking up the extra glucose, but they get full. So afterwards it goes to fat cells. So um, glycation. Very interesting process. And it's the third process that I, I touch on in the book um, and that I explain happens when a glucose spike takes place. So glycation is the process of a chicken going from pink to cooked when you put it in the oven, okay? <laughs> glycation is cooking. <laughs> or a piece of toast in the toaster that goes from, you know, not toasted to toasted. That's glycation. Right. And so this is going to sound really wild, but it's true. From the moment a human is born, they slowly cook, they slowly glycate. And then when they're fully glycated, they die, essentially. So as a human being, <laughs> you are glycating. And what's interesting is that this glycation is also a similar to aging. So the faster you glycate, the faster you cook, the faster you age. Okay, and this aging shows on your skin as wrinkles, for example, but it also slowly deteriorates your organs on the inside. And so 
glycation sounds a lot like glucose and it's because glucose does this glycation process. So anytime a glucose molecule in your body bumps into another molecule, it, it damages it, it glycates it. And then once the molecule is glycated, you can't unglycate it. Hmm. And the more excess glucose you have, so the more glucose spikes you have, the faster this process is happening because the more glucose molecules are just around to uh, do it. And that's why the more glucose spikes you have, the faster you age. There you have hmm. it. Hmm. I hope I'm medium rare and not well done at this point. <laughs> um yeah that's fascinating you know i've heard of these compounds called advanced glycation end products um known as ages which is a acronym that kind of fits the bill um where for example like hemoglobin which is you know the, the molecule in your red blood cells that's responsible for bringing oxygen to your cells is a protein that's a certain kind of protein um <clears throat> and that essentially when it gets glycated it creates this sort of glycoprotein um, that can be very inflammatory in your vascular system so for example you you mentioned before you know it's not the eggs or, or dairy or high saturated fat necessarily that's causing heart disease it's inflammation in the vascular system that then allows these kind of small ldl particles to get lodged in the arterial walls and then become um, oxidized and form foams and plaques, et cetera. And that can be a downstream cause from having um, too much glycation or too much inflammation. So it's uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And something else that I want to mention is that, so we talked about, you know, starches and sugars being the two main mm. sources of glucose, but there's something I didn't say yet, which is that starches just contain glucose. But anything that is sweet contains glucose and fructose. Yeah. And that's really key because fructose glycates things even more than glucose does. And so because fructose always goes hand in hand with glucose in sweet foods, because together they form table sugar, essentially. Table sugar is half glucose, half fructose. Well, yeah. when you, you know, steady your glucose levels and you just focus on this glucose thing, you're also naturally steadying or reducing how much fructose you're intaking. And so a big benefit of this steady glucose approach is getting that amount of fructose also down. Mm, yeah. In fact, there's a couple of books that came out last year, one by David Perlmutter and another by Rick Johnson that mm. looked specifically at fructose. Mm. Um as uh, triggering this uric acid pathway that essentially tells your cells to become insulin resistant and store fat. And again, uh, Rick Johnson's book was, was a great title because nature wants us to be fat. Mm -hmm. um, because nature, when scarcity was coming, when there was winter impending right around you know the bend, uh, and you went out in the fall and gorged on a bunch of figs mm -hmm. um, and the fructose in those figs would then essentially tell your cells to be like, Hey, don't take all this into the cells for energy production. Now save it because you're going to need it, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, during these months of scarcity. And so much of the body works that way. It's just fascinating. It's like constantly self-regulating and trying to 
create these uh, homeostasis between two kind of opposing forces. And, yes, uh, and I, I, I love that you said that because your body is just trying to keep you alive, right? Like all the stuff that happens is your body doing its best to try to just deal with what's going on. Um, and something I hear also quite a bit is that oh, you know, my body hates me, my body's against me, or, you know, my body's trying to sabotage me, etc. It's like, well, actually, a lot of the symptoms that you're experiencing, in my view, they're your body trying to communicate with you, trying to tell you something, mm -hmm. trying to ask yeah. you to take care of what's going on inside. So once I was able to flip that in my own head and be like, oh like all these mental health problems and just the brain fog and the fatigue, they're actually my body trying to speak to me. And that really changed so, so much for me. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned fructose and glucose coming together to form sucrose. Mm -hmm. So anything with an os, is that a fair assumption to say is a sugar or a carbohydrate? And our, and and where does that come from? Is that mostly plants? And what about lactose? <laughs> lactose also breaks down to glucose. Yeah, I don't think you can say yeah. that any word that finishes in os breaks down to glucose. But yeah, it's it's a very common <laughs> one. It's a good question. I, I actually don't know the answer to that. Do all sugars um, that break down to glucose finish in os? Probably because I think mm. the OSC refers to something specific. Um, but yeah, I mean, the main sources of glucose in your body are going to be just the starch chains and the actual, you know, sucrose. Those are the mm -hmm. most abundant molecules that break down to glucose. There are other things that can break down to glucose or increase your glucose levels. For example, when you eat some protein, it can also have an impact on your glucose levels even fat to a small extent, but really the main, the big guys here that we're looking at are starches and sugars. I mean, fats and carbohydrates actually share a lot of common properties just at the chemical level. I think, you know, glucose is C6H12O6 if I remember wow, nice. from, from the old days. Um, so it's essentially a long chain carbon molecule and so are fats. And so, you know, it's just like a couple hydrogens here and there. <laughs> that, that, it's um, wild how, yeah. you know, when you look at it, it's all like the same atoms. You're like, Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Just a small rearrangement. I mean, it's the, it's the diamond and lead thing, right? It's like small rearrangements can just right. make a completely different material or substance. It's wild or tissue. Yeah. You know? And if you really want to brain freeze, you can realize that all of these elements came from the explosion of supernovas 8 billion years ago <laughs> that mm -hmm. cooked these elements in their inner cores and then exploded and vomited them all over the universe. And here we are talking about glucose. Um, or that we're mostly <laughs> empty space. That one trips me out too. Yeah, the fact, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that the nucleus in cells or in atoms are like these tiny little things. In fact, yeah, the rest is I just think, nothing. I think I read the nucleus in an atom is uh, just metaphorically the same size of as the grain of sand in Notre Dame Cathedral. Stop. Yeah. Oh my god. And the rest of it is electrons spinning around, you know. So yeah, you are very spacey. Don't let anyone <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> 
<laughs> if someone says that, don't take it as an insult. Um, <laughs> I'll be like, thanks, you too. You too. <laughs> and I can prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked a little bit about the relationship between, you know, chronic glucose spikes and cancer and diabetes, obviously. But um, a lot of people are calling Alzheimer's uh, type 3 diabetes. You know, why is that? What is the relationship here between glucose spikes and dementia and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's? It's because we're starting to see, and when I say we, I mean, I mean scientists across the world are starting to see that Alzheimer's and dementia share a lot of similar things with type 2 diabetes. For instance, in the brain, in the brain of somebody who has Alzheimer's or dementia, you see insulin resistance in the brain cells, meaning they can't uptake energy effectively anymore. You see mitochondria dysfunction, which is what we talked about, happens in your cells when there's a big glucose spike going on. You see inflammation, you see glycation. And then statistics are showing us that if you have elevated glucose when you're 35 years old, you have a higher risk of getting dementia later on. And so the model of like Alzheimer's is this plaque-based disease that you can't do anything about is really shifting. And there's pretty good evidence showing us that, mm, no, actually, it's a metabolic disease. And mm. one really scary thing that happened last month is that somebody who was who was 18 years old got diagnosed with dementia. Whoa. And so I just wonder, and this is, I hope this is not going to happen, but you know how type 2 diabetes used to be called late onset diabetes? Adult right. onset? Sorry, sorry uh, adult, adult onset. onset. Right, yeah. Well, I hope that we're not going to see something similar with dementia, where we always thought dementia is for people who are, you know, at a late stage in their life. I hope it's not going to happen earlier and earlier as metabolic health gets worse. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, you know, our culture of overnutrition has had all of these very strange impacts. Like, for example, um, like puberty in females like when girls get their period used to be like 16 now it's 12. It used to be 16? Yeah not that long ago I think it's maybe in even like a couple hundred years ago so then you scratch your head and you're like well what is going on there and you know could it be that because of overnutrition our bodies basically um tell our brains like well in the case of a young woman like i have enough energy stored energy now to go through the gauntlet of pregnancy so you know and this gets into like leptin so you know leptin is created in your fat cells um if you have an overabundance of fat cells you're going to be creating a lot of leptin leptin is a hormone a chemical messenger that then tells your brain it's generally like often associated with a satiety, but really I think more what it does, it says like, we have enough, we're enough. You know, we've got plenty of stockpiled storage, stored energy here, so we're good, you know? So you, we don't need to overconsume anything more. But I think that leptin might also be a signal um, that, oh, okay, yeah, I'm ready to have a baby. So mm. anyways, this is just, of course, a theory, but... Um, that's interesting. interesting. I wonder if that, that's interesting. Yeah, because we, I mean, you say overnutrition. To me, I feel like that's not the right term because it's not just eating a lot. It's like 
eating yeah. a lot of processed sugary stuff, right? Because if right. you're overfeeding on broccoli, you're not probably going to have this, even if you're eating like 10,000 calories of broccoli, <laughs> it's not going to be the same. So it's just like, it's a, it's a shift in the quality of the nutrition and what the molecules we're eating are, I think. That's like really at the core of all these changes. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, on that note in terms of the overconsumption of certain molecules, um, what is the impact of the overconsumption of sugar on the gut? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not really sure. What I, what I see in the studies is that when you start eating in a way that reduces how much sugar and processed foods you're eating, you know, the gut lining improves, irritable bowel syndrome improves, bloating can improve. But specifically to the gut, if I recall, I believe that when you have a lot of sugar in your diet, a lot of the, you know, bad microbes, bad bacteria overgrow in your gut and a lot of the good bacteria die off and so that's why it's so mm -hmm. important that we bring back way more fiber and vegetables and um, those kinds of foods in our diet to, to feed that but um, the gut is an area where i want to learn more like i feel like i don't know fully everything there is to know about it what do you know mm. well um only what i've read and and you know through interviews but there's a i think my one of the doors opened for me th through this doctor named will bolsowitz who yes. wrote a book called Fiber, Fiber Fueled. Fueled. Mm -hmm. And, um, but subsequently I've talked to many different gastroenterologists and, and other doctors and microbiome experts. Um, you know, I think what's fascinating is that, well, you know, we coexist with these 39 trillion bacteria in our, mostly in our colon, but now they're finding it actually in every organ and on our skin and in our nose, et cetera. But the overwhelming majority is there you know, in the colon and, you know, fiber that doesn't get digested um, in the gut that moves through feeds these bacteria and mm -hmm. they produce their own metabolites or postbiotics and kind of the most famous of which is butyrate. So this is like this short chain fatty acid and butyrate can um, upregulate the kind of those tight junctions that that maintain the integrity of the epithelial wall there in the, in the gut that, you know, protects against leaky gut and inflammation, but butyrate can also, um, upregulate insulin sensitivity. Mm. So it's pretty cool that if we feed, I mean, but we'll talk about fiber, um, in a minute, um, because it's part of your protocols. Um, but one or the other, uh, you know, besides just slowing down absorptions of, of carbohydrates in the, in the small intestine, it seems to have this uh, really fantastic impact on our bacteria. So um, that's one thing there. We love it. Yeah. So let's get into, so I think we've fully established <laughs> that glucose spikes um, are pretty detrimental to, to health. So maybe we can talk about some of the solutions that you propose in the book for uh, controlling glucose spikes. Yes, and, that's a um, good idea. Let's do that. Let's do it. Okay. So, so where do you want to start? Well, I think I want to start saying that what I've been doing over the past um, several years has been, you know, reading all the cutting edge science in this topic, trying to figure out 
if there are ways and things we can do in our daily life to avoid those spikes and feel good. And so in my book, The Glucose Goddess Method, Mm -hmm. what I've done is I've taken the four most powerful principles to avoid these glucose spikes and start feeling better quite quickly without doing anything, you know, drastic, without cutting out any foods, because I love my pasta, I love my chocolate cake. So like the the extreme diets are personally not going to work for me. And I want to offer people some steps that are really easy. So it's a four week plan and it goes like this. Week one, we look at breakfast because it's very important for your glucose levels to have a savory breakfast, not a sweet breakfast. And we continue this breakfast for the full four weeks. And I have, you know, tons of recipes, inspiration. It's very fun. And a savory breakfast is essentially a breakfast based around protein. That's the main tenant of it. And that doesn't contain anything sweet, except some whole fruit if you want. Then week two... We incorporate. Could I just say yeah. one thing? The yeah. the savory jam. So you have a lot you of like recipes it. in it. Savory yes. jam, like that's a big star for me. Mm-hmm. Seven minute eggs, no spike granola. Those were my Thank three you. check marks. So oh yeah. And, and, and for everyone you know who's just listening, the the recipes in the book around savory breakfast will change your mindset completely around breakfast there'll be no more bagels muffins like Mm -hmm. glucose spiking granola pancakes none of that stuff this is a a much tastier um and obviously healthy way to go yes yeah and also (laughs) you feel so different jeff you know when you switch your entire day goes differently and if you've always had a sweet breakfast you don't even know how good you feel if you switch over to something more savory right and the granola recipe is a great example because most granolas are full of sugar and carbs and this version that i that i offer is like a a glucose steady version so even if you love granola you can totally still have this version based around nuts with greek yogurt and berries to enjoy it but keep your glucose steady so yeah, awesome. we start with so, breakfast because it's so powerful <laughs> and important. Great. Uh, and then week two, we incorporate one tablespoon of vinegar once a day. So first of all, how do you do it? And then I'll explain why the hell we do it. And so you do it mm-hmm. by putting a tablespoon of vinegar. It can be any type of vinegar in a big glass of water and having that once a day. Or I have lots of mocktail recipes, tea recipes, dressings. You can do it that way too. And the reason we add vinegar during the second week of the glucose goddess method is because vinegar contains a very powerful molecule. I'm going to quiz you, Jeff. Do you know the name of the molecule? Well, I do. Acetic acid, right? Yeah, there you go. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so acetic acid is really cool and powerful and what it does is that it slows down how quickly starches break down to glucose in your digestive system and vinegar well acetic acid goes to your muscles and remember how i said that your muscles are really good at storing that glycogen well it tells your muscles to store even more than usual so as a result anything you eat afterwards that contains glucose is going to lead to a smaller spike so as a result, your energy will be steadier, have fewer cravings, you'll feel better, it'll be helping your health and your hormones. So it's, c'est tout benef, like we say in French. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. 
Is there any kinds of vinegar that we should watch out for? Do we need pasteurized vinegar? Does any vinegar count? Apple cider? Help us out there. You can do any type of vinegar, like apple cider, white wine vinegar, cherry vinegar, balsamic, except be careful with the very syrupy balsamic glazes mm. that are more like, you know, creams and yeah. syrups. Um, those are full of sugar, so those don't work. But otherwise, any vinegar works. And I recommend like testing out a few of the of the little drink recipes and finding one that you like. For example, I just really got into white vinegar. I used to be an apple cider vinegar girl and now I, I actually really like the white vinegar vibe. So I do just too. Yeah. you do too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a bit less intense as a taste. And if you get uh, you can try out different ones and see, you know, which one resonates with your palates but also the the recipes are super nice um there's a hot cinnamon tea with vinegar that i love mm. in week two um there's a turmeric uh, mocktail which is super fun yeah. so you'll find inspiration and i i encourage people to sort of make it a little ritual you know have your little vinegar drink help your glucose it makes me feel so good now to drink that vinegar right so a tablespoon a day keeps yes. the glucose spikes away yes yeah. we need to make a t-shirt Are there any other foods that serve as glucose sinks or vacuums, mm. if you will, um, if you of. can't manage the vinegar? I mean, vinegar seems like it's the number one option, but... Vinegar uh, is the best option during the second week, but if you really can't manage it, you can swap it out for, for lemon juice. Now, mm. lemon reduces glucose spikes through a different mechanism um, than the acetic acid and vinegar. But I know that for some people, it's just the vinegar thing just doesn't work. Or maybe your doctor told you, like, don't drink vinegar. And in that case, you can do the lemon option. But the word you said I love, the, uh, any foods that are glucose vacuums, well, mm. in week three we incorporate a really wonderful substance, which is fiber that we just talked about. And so in week three of the method, what we do is we add a vegetable-based starter to one of our meals a day. So this can be very simple. It can be, you know, some cherry tomatoes from your fridge, or it can be my favorite recipe, backwards broccoli, or it can be a ton of other... You like that one? <laughs> that was my. That was the one that I noted particularly. Also, just because of the method of, of making it, it's, yep. it's backwards. <laughs> Basically, it's backwards. So it's cool. You don't yeah. put the broccoli in the a pot of hot water. You put the hot water into a bowl of raw broccoli, and it's very cool. And I yeah. have to say, you know, I love cooking, but also I'm quite lazy and I don't have a lot of time. So I wanted all these recipes to be six ingredients or less, things you can just whip up, super simple. And they're, you know, they're the things that I just cook every day to get my glucose hacks in. And I hope that that's how people will. Um, vacuum them up into their lives and they'll become just staples and habits. That's the point. We're not here to do like a complicated, you know, once a month, like Sunday roast recipe book. This is stuff to do every day to do these glucose hacks and feel better. Hmm. And the rest of the time during the method, Jeff, apart from doing the four hacks in the glucose goddess method, you do whatever you want. You drink whatever you want. You eat whatever you want. It's not restrictive. You're not counting calories. You're simply adding these hacks in like sort of gentle giants in your day and reaping the benefits and feeling better. But it's total freedom the rest of the time. Mm. Yeah, you do such an amazing job um, talking about cadencing of, of consumption. So what mm. foods to eat when to limit glucose spikes and... Uh, 
I, you inspired me to do something very embarrassing. But now when I, I, I have like a date night with Skylar yeah. where, you know, we'll have a glass of wine and, you know, and, um, and I'll bring like a little baggie of walnuts with me Nice. <laughs> and I'll it. pop them out and I'll eat some walnuts first before I drink my glass of wine. Why would I ever do something like that? <laughs> It's it's the glucose goddess's fault, um, but that's that's wonderful. No, because you're right. You know the the nuts they have fiber, they have protein, they have fat in them, and so mm -hmm. those molecules really help reduce how quickly any glucose molecules coming down afterwards make it to your bloodstream. And that's the whole concept of this veggie starter. The fiber acts as a really amazing buffer or protective mesh so that any glucose molecules afterwards don't go through your bloodstream so much. And so the spike is smaller, even though you're still eating the same meal as usual, but you're actually even adding more food at the beginning. Yeah, that's amazing. It's non-instinctual, but mm -hmm. it makes total sense when you understand uh, the mechanism. I love the way you describe that as the mesh or like this lattice work yeah. that sort of aligns the small intestine and it just says slow down the slow absorption down. Slow exactly down. no it's making that intestinal wall you know uh, much thicker and more protective and uh, it's really cool to learn how you know your biology can just do these things i think it's wonderful yeah. it's the interplay between your food and your body it's really very wonderful um and I then need finally, fiber oh, for my i need fiber for my brain to slow down my thoughts oh yeah Ooh, <laughs> what's that called I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's called meditation i don't know um all right let's get number four okay number four so in week four you're doing the breakfast vinegar and um uh, fiber veggie starter and then you add in 10 minutes of movement once a day after a meal and this can be super simple movement it can be going for a walk cleaning your kitchen, doing some calf raises at your desk. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, intense workout with barbells and stuff. We're just talking simple stuff. You can watch TV and do some bicep curls with a bottle of water. Like just make it super simple <laughs> for yourself. But why do we do this? Because our muscles, as I mentioned, are really good at soaking up that extra glucose. And so when you use them for 10 minutes after a meal, a lot of the glucose from the meal is going to go and be used for energy by your mitochondria and your muscles instead of hanging around and creating this big glucose spike. And so, again, you don't have to change what you're eating the rest of the time. Just by adding this movement after one of your meals a day, you're going to get way fewer of the symptoms of any glucose spikes that you might be experiencing. Yeah, I I have a bunch of different kooky rituals associated with um, kind of post postprandial um, uh, movement, and I get teased endlessly by my children. But anyways, I'll I'll after dinner I'll drop and do like fifty pushups. I know that that's wow. that's over that's over, you know that's over the top. Not everyone's going to do that, but. My kids are always like, there goes dad with his push-ups. But do um, you do it right after the meal because you can wait up to 90 minutes to do your Yeah, not, not generally not right after, you know, sometimes we'll, I mean, like you say, actually doing the dishes is actually a pretty good way because Absolutely. you're up and you're moving, you're going to the table, you're bringing things over, you're putting things Absolutely. away, you're drying. And it's also a nice family ritual. I've got, you know, yeah. my girls and we all do it together and that's nice. But um, when I'm violating my blue light clause and um, 
and watching, you know, some Netflix or something with my girls. At oh night. my God, Jeff, you watch Netflix. I know what? it's coming out here. It's a scandal. Um, I love Netflix. <laughs> I know. Sorry, but I will, uh, to compensate, I will, um, I will often be like on the ground, you know, Ooh. with rolling on some massage balls or doing a few little, you know, some a little bit of resistance training or a few push-ups or just yeah. some core stuff. And I feel great. I mean, I also like, I'd like to go to sleep with my food as fully digested as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. So then when I am actually go to sleep, I'm in a more or less fasted state. Yeah, And that can take like three hours unless mm -hmm. you're helping move that process along. And so totally. just going for like a walk after dinner is yeah. just the best thing. Totally. So, and yeah. I relate to the TV thing. Like I can't just watch TV. I have to be doing other things. <laughs> yeah. So I'm either yeah. rolling a lacrosse ball under my foot or I'm just like stretching totally. or I'm folding the laundry. You know, I, I need to, I can't just watch TV. I'm like, but what else am I? I need to do other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know it. I'm the same way. You know, I feel like, oh, it's time scarcity. Like they, I have to, I have to parallel process here to get exactly. the most out of life. Um, so these are the four primary hacks that you talk about um, in this book. I know that in your previous book, um, there were, I think you had 10, but these yes, are like the exactly. four, four like primary ones you can really, really focus on. And they're so simple. Like there's really, you can just integrate them into your life and without sense, making yourself cool. miserable. Absolutely. And you know, Actually, when you think about it, these hacks that we now understand the scientific basis for, and we can see through the studies how they work on the body and why they're so powerful, these are things that we've known for a long time. You know, yeah. cultural wisdom, ancestral wisdom is here. We never used to have sweet foods for breakfast. We always had just regular, you know, meat and potatoes or whatever we ate the rest of the day. There was no like dessert for breakfast. That is an invention. Vinegar yeah. has been used for centuries in so many cultures around the world as a health uh, food, the veggie starter. I mean, in France, we have crudité, which is raw veggies at the beginning of a meal. In Italy, antipasti. You know, in the Middle, middle East, they do herbs before the meals. Like, this mm. is something we've known. And the mm. moving after eating, like, the walking after a meal, I don't think there's anything that is more, <laughs> more culturally prevalent than going right. for a walk after eating. Like, I mean... So it's cool to me to realize that this cutting edge science is really connected to the ancestral wisdom and yeah. that our bodies just soak them up and respond so well to these habits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. And you know, I think one of the other points that you made that towards the beginning of the book that I found to be really refreshing mm -hmm. is that, that this is not, really a weight loss program at all in fact yeah. um it's really about upgrading the way that you feel and your energy levels and everything that we've talked about in my case the weight loss was sort of a happy byproduct side effect yep yeah so can you talk about that just a, a little bit because i think it's important Absolutely. for people to hear 
Absolutely. So when you focus on your glucose levels and you avoid the spikes, the first thing that happens is that you feel better, right? Because you're doing this for your health. You're helping your mitochondria. You're helping your neurons. You're balancing your hormones and, you know, giving your body all this extra energy that you might not have had for a very long time. So we're here for health. We're here to prevent dementia, to reverse type 2 diabetes, to, you know, clear up your skin, to help your brain fog. But then what happens as well is that because when you steady your glucose levels, your cravings dissipate, your hunger reduces, and insulin reduces, which means you're burning fat more often. What happens very often is that you also lose fat on your body as a consequence of those processes taking place. And to give you some numbers, so for the glucose goddess method, because I'm a scientist and I just love doing these sorts of things, I recruited 3,000 people in October 2022, and they all went through the method um, before anybody else, before I finished even writing the whole book. And 40% of them lost fat during these four weeks on their body. They lost weight, even though they were eating more than usual. They were not counting calories. They didn't remove any foods from their diet. And they weren't even trying to lose weight. So just to show you that the obsession with weight loss at all costs and doing extreme diets and crazy stuff is not the way to go. Because if you naturally just help your health improve, if your body needs to lose weight, it will just naturally without you really trying. So I just want to really emphasize this point that we're here for health and we're here to thrive and feel happy and feel good and have energy and be able to go after our dreams and spend time with those we love and feeling good in our mm. body and then the weight loss is a consequence yeah yeah thanks for underscoring that jesse i think it's just really important because you know there are myriad weight loss programs and crash diets, et cetera. And they yeah. almost always fail because yeah. people might lose weight temporarily, but in almost all cases, you yeah. put it back on. Absolutely. Because, um, and this is really just more about a change in lifestyle such that you feel better and more energetic. And it, it has so many different ramifications in life. I mean, mm -hmm. It, yeah, it's great for yourself, but it's also really great for the people around you. <laughs> if yeah. you're bringing your best vibrant self I like that. to your mm -hmm. family and friends and community and coworkers day in and day yeah. out, yeah. you're going to get that energy back in your mm -hmm. life. Um, and, you know, I, there's no um, accident to the fact that you know, I called this podcast and my company Commune because, you know, the number one determinant for self-reported happiness and well-being is the strength of your social connections. I right? love that. It's so true. Mm -hmm. But you can't have really strong relationships if you are not able to bring your best self to that relationship. Totally. So totally. And this, also there's this yeah. amazing study, Jeff, that showed that uh, in married couples, so researchers gave uh, married people a voodoo doll representing their, their spouse. And they asked <laughs> the participants, not joking, it's wild, to That's put dangerous. a pin in the voodoo doll 
every time they felt irritated by their spouse. Mm. And then they looked at their glucose levels and they found that people who experienced more glucose lows, right, which is what can happen after a spike, those people put way more pins in the voodoo dolls. So being on a glucose roller coaster can impact how irritated you feel around the house. And you know this, this thing of being hangry? being hungry and angry which i used to have all the time that's such an that's such a very clear sign that you're on this glucose roller coaster and that your body is just being thrown up and down and you just like your personality changes so I love that you just said this. When you learn to balance your glucose level, it's a really positive step for people to become who they really are and become, you know, more open and connected and kinder and to have better relationships. Yeah. And, and you know, this really does extend past one's own circle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, we talk a lot about inflammation in the body and how. Um, glucose spikes can contribute to inflammation in the body, but there's also societal inflammation. You know, Mm. we don't have to look very far to see kind of this very polarized Mm -hmm. invective and people just throwing invidious barbs at each other on social media and all that kind of stuff. And I really believe that that inflammation on a societal level is a spillover from inflammation in the body kind of spilling into the body politic and uh, you know if we're able to control inflammation in our own body i think it's going to go a long way to being able to foster a lot more cooperation and society at large so you know i think the work that you're doing obviously impacts people on a very personal level but i completely connected to societal well-being. So I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I can't tell you uh, enough how important I think what you're doing is and how well you're communicating it to so many people. It's having just such a huge impact. And uh, I'm just one of the very few grateful people um, uh, out of you, many, many, many millions of people now that you're, that you're touching. So I'm I so really happy. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy to see this book, The Glucose Goddess Method, um, get out there far and wide. And and just grateful for our budding friendship and relationship. Yes, so. me too. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Seriously, those, those words mean a lot. And I, I just want to help people start and just want to help people make these changes. And that's what I'm really obsessed with. It's like, how do I help you? actually do the thing that you you want to do and you want to feel better but i want to help you take that first step so um thank you thank you so much for for having me and for being such a kind supporter of my work it means a lot yeah well i'm aspiring to be a glucose deity someday (laughs) (laughs) you are jeff you're officially a a glucose god (laughs) nice you've you've knighted me right here exactly in public um all right jesse to be continued hopefully we could do it again Thank you, Jeff. Okay, thanks for listening to my conversation with Jesse Anchospe. I urge you to check out her new book, The Glucose Goddess Method, and sign up for her new commune course about blood sugar, insulin, and glucose health at onecommune.com slash glucose challenge.
Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, please subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 120 courses featuring the world's top authors, doctors, spiritualists, sages, mystics, thought leaders, and you can check it out for 14 days for free, no strings attached, at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Savannah Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, Leda Maliga, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.